Uh, a very warm welcome, everyone, to the Alatia Foundation podcast series. This is a forum where industry experts share their insights uh, on all things energy. My name is Axel Threlfall. I'm editor-at-large. Uh, Reuters based out of London. I'm joined by Hong Peng Liu, director uh, of the Energy Division at United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific, also known as SCAP. Uh, we're going to discuss uh, the pathway to the UN Sustainable Development Goals 7, more commonly known as SDG7. Its aim is to ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable and modern uh, energy for all. Um, uh, Hongpeng, a, a very warm welcome. Nice to see you today. Um, as, a, as a context setter, I want to start with a very important meeting that's going to take place, a high-level dialogue at the end of September uh, on energy uh, at the United Nations. Tell me how important this meeting is to SDG 7 and to, to getting SDG 7 right. Thank you very much, Excel. Uh, for this uh, opportunity. And thank you for the question. This is really a right time to talk about this high level dialogue on energy. So, uh, this is a very important uh, uh, event at that level because uh, this is the first time after 40 years. So the last time uh, at the same level, the uh, dialogue was in 1981. So this year, next week on the 24th, September, during the uh, General Assembly, uh, General Debate, uh, uh, Debate Week, so there's a high-level dialogue on energy, which will convened by the Secretary General of the United Nations with the participation of a head of state. So the main purpose is that to renew uh, the commitment to achieve 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, in particular, the SDG 7, as you said, this SDG 7 goals is affordable and clean energy, which include the three targets to be achieved by 2030. The first one is for universal access to energy services. Secondly, is increase potentially the share of renewable energy in the global energy mix. And the third one is to double the global rate of improvement in energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. So we expect the outcome from this uh, high-level dialogue will be energy compact. So this energy compact is voluntary, uh, voluntary commitment from member states to commit themselves how they can achieve this 2030 target on SDG 7. And and Hongpeng, how you know, clearly, as I said, this is an opportunity. Uh, 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 it's a political platform. Um, it's a it's a it's an opportunity to review ambitions and make sure priorities are, are being set correctly. How, how hopeful are you that we'll see progress at this meeting? You know, since the last year, we already started together with the member countries to prepare for this high-level dialogue. There are five things set up to prepare for this high-level dialogue. We call it uh, the five thematic areas. One is for universal access, second one is for energy transition, Third one is financing investment and also renew the commitment. So uh, SCAP, together with the International Renewable Energy Agency and the UNEP, we support the member countries for energy transition mm. uh, thematic areas. We actually did a background study to see how much we can achieve through energy transition to support this uh, 2030 agenda and also SDG 7. Well, of course, we identify the bigger gaps and still if we go on the current path, 
and there won't be uh, achieve this uh, uh, SDG seven by twenty thirty. Mm. So we have to accelerate uh, the progress in all of the countries to achieve this. At the same time, this will also contribute to the Paris Agreement. Yeah, yeah, and, and in fact, I want to come on to that, and and I want to come on to how the Asia Pacific region. Uh, and indeed, the main, uh, uh, the, the 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 Middle East region uh, is is doing uh, in a second. But let let's take a, a closer look at the bits of SDG seven, the, the sustainable part, the clean part first, and then the affordable part. Is the clean part interchangeable with this with this phrase that we've become so accustomed to, low carbon emission energy? Yeah, if you look at uh, the SDG 7, as I mentioned, it's a covered energy access, renewable energy, and energy efficiency. It's all to reduce the greenhouse gas emission at the same time to meet the demand of energy growth with the clean and the renewable energy. Even for energy access, we expect the energy access to provide renewable energy electricity to those households in rural areas, because those are the populations without access to electricity, without access to clean cooking fuels. So for those uh, vulnerable groups, you know, the last mile is really a big challenge. Mm. So we see, you know, with this decentralized technology on renewable energy, so they can access to electricity and the clean cooking fuels by the locally available renewable energy resources. Yeah. So that means that even for them, they will use the cleaner energy for the energy access to electricity for them. So I really see this is uh, the SDG 7 aims to have a greener and a cleaner energy supply in the yeah. future. Um, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about net zero emissions by 2050. In fact, the Alethea Foundation held a, a high level, high level uh, roundtable recently uh, on this subject, how 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 does this align with the SDG goals, and how is the Asia Pacific region doing generally when it comes to net zero emissions targets? So, if I come back, you know, with this uh, uh, the history of uh, SDG seven and the Paris Agreement, if you look at the 2015, both of these important kind of international commitment agreed by the members in, 19, uh, in 2015. So in January 2015, the General Assembly began the negotiations for the new agenda, the development agenda for post-2015. So that came up as a, a 2030 agenda for sustainable development with the 17 sustainable development goals and also this kind of uh, uh, goals was adopted by the members at the Sustainable Development Summit in September 2015. And then the Paris Agreement was adopted in December 2015. Mm. So this is really correlated with the commitment from the government, from member countries to continue this kind of sustainable path through energy transition to achieve the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and at the same time to meet the uh, the demand of uh, energy supply. And uh, I really see this is the interchangeable, you know, between this uh, Paris Agreement target and also this uh, SDG 7 target. But there's also a large number of uh, SDGs uh, related to Paris Agreement, not only SDG 7. If you look at the SDG 15, 
life on land. That's also related to adaptation of the climate change. And also the SDG2 is zero hunger. That's mainly you know, how you meet the demand from those vulnerable groups to provide energy supply for their daily life, to release, uh, to uh, alleviate their poverty. So of course there are gaps between these two, but still you can see reinforced each other yeah. from uh, the, the SDGs and the Paris Agreement. Yeah. Let, let's, um, you know, another critical piece of this is affordability, of course, and we, we talk often about yeah, public sector support and private sector support. Uh, can you can you just explain to our audience the the issue, the difficulty of squaring affordability with low emission solutions? Um, should we be holding low emission solutions up as the affordable uh, uh, solution now? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. You know, it's a one time, one side, you have to meet the demand. On the other side, how can you meet the demand with the cleaner and affordable energy, sustainable energy? So uh, we all know there are good and reliable, clean and low carbon technology. But why it is moving slowly than expected now? If you look at uh, globally, affordability is the main issues to consider how you can just uh, you know, think about the cost of these technologies at the same time, the market price. But more and more countries now start thinking to how to develop a kind of a policy framework and to minimize this kind of uh, challenges, especially to set up a price for carbon. At the same time, to also develop a market-based based instrument. If you look at, uh, you know, to reduce the subsidies for fossil fuels, because you know, the fossil fuel, the conventional energy is cheaper because they have some subsidies. Mm. So if you look at the renewables, if the subsidies reduced from the fossil fuels, at the same time, if you calculate, internalize the cost of externalities of fossil fuels, for example, the damage to the environment, that will increase the cost of fossil fuels. So renewable energy will be more competitive. Yep. At the same time, because the market grows, the cost for renewable energy is declining. For the last 10 years, the solar uh, PV, solar photovoltaic, decreased almost 85 to 90% of the cost for mm-hmm. the same kilowatt uh, in 10 years. So that's really, you see the declining of the cost at the same time if we have a proper market mechanism that will increase the competitiveness of renewables and the clean kind of uh, technology solutions. What is is ESCAP's general take on carbon pricing and on this, uh, the the increased offsetting we're seeing by, by some of the big companies and countries um, as we move, move forward, clearly the, uh, the the environmental people, the uh, uh, the, the 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 trackers, uh, frown a little bit on this on this uh, this idea of too much offsetting. Where where, where does ESCAP stand on this? Uh, you know, from ESCAP, we are uh, part of the UN Secretariat, based in Bangkok. For you know, we serve the Asia Pacific region. So for Asia Pacific, this is the largest region if you compare to others. We also have a sister commission in uh, Middle East, you know, based in Beirut, Lebanon, for uh, to provide services and support uh, for intergovernmental process. 
But uh, you know, for Asia and the Pacific, I really think we have a great potential because this is the uh, a region to contribute to, to one third of the world GDP, and we also have this kind of potential, you know, to reduce the large scale of global greenhouse gas emission because now there are over 50% of the greenhouse gas emission is from this region. Yeah. But as you said, how we just think about offset for private sector, you know, as an intergovernmental uh, platform, we actually invite all the key stakeholders from member states, from private sector, NGOs, to share about the innovative options. So that is where we can provide the support and for them to discuss what is the best practices, we even bring the European uh, stakeholders to join us to share their good practices. You, you mm. know, in Europe, they started this carbon market. There are a lot of good uh, practices that could be also applied in Asia. And also in Asia, we also have uh, the emerging economies like China. Early this year, they started their carbon market carbon trading initiative. Now this is the largest single carbon market in the world. But although it's just started from this year, but it's set up a very good kind of framework, which will be probably scaled up very soon and to play a role. But at the same time, a lot of private sector also pay much attention what will be the future kind of potential through this kind of carbon offsetting, what are the new business opportunities yeah, for them? Yeah. So I really think that brings the opportunities to address this kind of challenges. Um, it's a, it's a it's a political question, this one, Hong Peng, and I um, you know, I apologize for putting you on the spot. But are you impressed with what you're seeing from China, seeing and hearing from China in terms of net zero targets, 2030 targets, 2060 targets, um, peak emissions targets? Are you impressed? This is a very good question and also difficult question. But at the, if you look at the regional level, now in Asia and the Pacific, we have China, Japan, and Korea. These three major economies already committed for carbon neutral by middle of the century. China is for 2060. The other two is by 2050. This is really at the top level uh, to commit for carbon neutral. And I, I really see this will be a good example for other countries to follow. But of course, a different country has a different uh, conditions. They really need to develop the policies in the context of their own country's conditions. They have to balance the environment, the social and the economic development. And uh, the three pillars, you know, they have to balance the, you know, their long-term development at the same time to think about how to achieve these climate goals. Mm, mm. I, I see the positive side, but I also see this is not an easy target. And this is a mission possible, but it needs a lot of effort. Yeah. And need a lot of the whole sector, the whole country, not only for energy sector. Of course, the energy sector will play a major role, but there are other sectors, the transport and the industrial sector, even agricultural sector. Yeah. Well, should join together to achieve this goal. Um, a, a couple more uh, things, Hong Peng, and, and you know, related to the the China question, and indeed the Asia Pacific uh, region, um, and, and that is the uh, dependence on fossil fuels. I mean, I was chatting with one of our correspondents uh, in, in China the other day, an environmental correspondent 
who has seen a number of coal plants popping up. They continue to pop up uh, in China, uh, um, despite caps being, being, being put on this sort of thing. How do you square that whole fossil fuel fuel consumption piece with the energy transition now? How hopeful are you that we are indeed moving in the right direction when we look at the Asia Pacific region in particular? Yeah, we did a study recently about uh, possibilities of phase out of coal in Asia Pacific. Uh, we see, you know, for last uh, two decades, you know, there's a growing uh, a number of new thermal coal power plants. But we also see more and more financing institutions, including the national, the state banks in China, and also the international multilateral banks in Asia, and to commit to stop financing for new thermal coal power plants. So this is, although this is slowly moving, but we see the trend. I, I can see if for next five years, if there's no any new thermal power plant, you will see the declining of the thermal power plant mm. uh, generation with more renewables in this uh, region. But at the same time, this region also leading the renewable energy development, the installation of renewable energy capacity actually surpassed the fossil fuel generation capacity. So yeah. that's really the, the, the good kind of sign. But we see there's still great challenge because some of the countries, as you said earlier, the cost for the, the low emission solutions is still higher, especially up from the investment. But yes. for those countries, how can you just meet that? They really need the government policies one side to give this kind of a favorable support for cleaner and lower emission kind of solutions. On the other side, actually to control, to reduce, and even to eliminate the investment from a government to thermal power plant. So I really think both these two directions we have to keep in mind whenever you need a new generation capacity. But uh, yeah. Yeah, sorry to, to interrupt, Hong Kong. I've just got a wary eye on the time. Um, you know, I want to finish up with a with a broad question that encompasses also how you have dealt with the pandemic, how the pandemic has has impacted your work. You know, as we approach this this high level dialogue uh, on energy at, at summit level, is um, the pandemic uh, seen more as an opportunity uh, um, for, 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 for those in your space working in this uh, environmental space? Or is it seen more challenge as, as some uh, countries revert to old bad habits? You know, if you look at the outbreak uh, last year, there was a great impact for this region because this you know, started from this region and uh, even for ourselves, we have to postpone and uh, cancel all our meetings and the activities at the you know, regional level. But after a few months, uh, at least you know, people used to this situation. And also, if you look at one of the positive side of the outbreak is to bring down the greenhouse gas emissions in this region, largely because uh, the slowdown of economy, economic activities, especially the transport sector, and also the, even the private kind of industries stopped. So there are a lot of positive side, but the negative part is you know the economy is really slowed down. 
and the a lot of vulnerable groups lost their jobs. So at the same time, you know, this COVID-19 pandemic amplified the vulnerabilities, especially for poor and other marginalized groups. You know, we have those countries in Asia and Pacific, we call the LDCs, LDCs, the least developed countries and the landlocked developed countries, even small island countries. They are really, you know, have this kind of exposed to higher frequency and the intensity of natural disasters in addition to this pandemic. So that's really a threatening for their economy. But I see also the opportunities. If you talk about this recovery from this pandemic, the many countries already develop or announced or develop their recovery package with the stimulus, you know, instrument that's covered the economy recovery. At the same time, they emphasize the greener recovery. That's really good opportunity, create more efficient and effective kind of regional supply chains and also trade investment coordinations. I really think that's an opportunity we have to grasp opportunities at the moment. More and more countries should follow in this green, uh, greener recovery, building yeah. back better. Yeah. Are you, are you more, very, very quickly, are you more optimistic now uh, than you were two years ago? Of course. Yeah, I really see this is the great potential because more and more people realize, you know, the 2030 agenda, the uh, SDG 17, uh, SDGs, will have a great impact. And also they see there's the potential for their sustainable development. And also more and more investment go to the greener and also sustainable investment uh, uh, project. So mm. I, I'm more optimistical, you know, for this kind of future development from now, especially with this recovery of the uh, COVID-19. Very good. Uh, Hong Peng, I've got to stop it there. Uh, it's been fascinating. Many, many thanks. Hong Peng Liu, um, head of the or director of the uh, energy division at uh, SCAP, uh, part of the United Nations, of course. Uh, I'd like to remind all listeners uh, to please uh, visit the foundation's website, uh, www.abhafoundation.org. Uh, that's abhafoundation.org uh, for the latest reports. You can uh, also follow the foundation on Twitter at uh, Alatia uh, FNDN. Do watch this space uh, for the next uh, in the series of podcasts. Hong Peng again, many thanks to you. I'm Axel Threlfall. We'll see you next time.